Good morning. Hey, real quick, before, before I launch into the sermon, I want to take a moment because uh, something kicked up, kicked up this last week and uh, starts up this coming week. Um, and I know the teenagers in the room don't want me to say this. School has begun. And so uh, after all that we have seen, after all that we have walked through, and it doesn't matter if you're a parent of somebody in school, a student, a teacher, an administrator, you've walked through it this last year and a half. Um, I'd like to take a moment and have our students, teachers, administrators, if you're able to, please stand up. I, wanna, I want us to pray for you together. Don't be shy. You're gonna have to stand up and give speeches in class here soon, so this is a warm up, all right. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you um, facing and approaching a week or maybe already a week in with something that is uh, somewhat familiar, but not totally. And it's not just because of summer, but because of everything that this nation and this world has walked through the last year and a half. And so as students return to school, Lord, I pray first and foremost for the abundant life that you promise us, that it would just overflow from our students, from us as parents, from our teachers, from the administration, and Lord, I pray that whatever this school year looks like, and we do pray that it looks better than last year, but whatever it looks like, that you would, you would just make that promise that you made to us so clear, that you are a God who goes with us so that we can in turn um, just truly speak your life into the lives of every single person that we come into contact with. We pray for this school year. We pray, obviously, for your protection but Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see where you're at and what you're doing and be part of it at all times. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you very much. Um, hey, so what I wanna talk to you about this morning is a, it's a recurring theme probably for every single person I know. And even if you don't think this is a recurring theme for you, it is a theme for you. I wanna talk to you this morning about courage. Okay, now there are different kinds of courage, right? You've got you've got the kind of courage like diving board courage. Remember the first time off the high dive? Hypothetically speaking, you're in fifth grade, you get to the top of the high dive, it looks way higher than you ever imagined it would, and you get to the edge, and you decide, I'm not doing this, and, and everybody, all your friends were so nice on the way down the ladder. Again, this is just a hypothetical situation, all right? Yeah, there's, there's diving board courage, which really is fear like shoving you off the diving board, isn't it? Yeah. And then you've got first day of school courage, like we talked about, where you sit there in class and it feels like all eyes are on you, and the truth is nobody's looking at you at all because they're all doing the same thing, right? There's that kind of courage. There's, uh, you know, we watched Sandlot um, last week. Lincoln, our, our seven-year-old, and I watched Sandlot. And there's an interesting thing with movies. This is a little side comment. Remember how classic the movies felt? And then you watch it with young ears, and it's like, oh, I did not realize they had that kind of a mouth. Okay, so anyhow, we're watching Sandlot, and I was reminded of Babe Ruth courage. Some of you know this story, the called shot, home run, 1932 World Series, it's the fifth inning. Babe Ruth comes up to the plate. He's being mocked by the Chicago Cubs, and Babe Ruth and his New York Yankees are in game three of this World Series with him. And as they're mocking him, he just points. He just points out to the outfield. And some think he was pointing at the team, but after he took two strikes and made this gesture a couple more times, he launched a home run 440 feet right to where he pointed. 
I mean, that's conviction. And that's courage. There's another kind of courage. There's, um, I call this Ken Carroll and Wadsworth courage. Have you been through that intersection? It is terrifying, okay? But there's also something really fun. Okay, I'm a sissy. I'm scared of roller coasters. In fact, sometimes I'll get too high on the swings at the playground with my kids, and even that, it's like, whoa, I am done for the day, okay? But if you are heading west on Ken Carroll at Ken Carroll and Wadsworth, you got to be in the right lane, okay? you got to have the luck to catch the green light. That right lane, I'm telling you, when you get to the west side of that intersection, you are in for a drop, and it is, it's a free roller coaster, I'm just saying, all right? Every time I'm driving toward it, I just go, do I have it in me today? <laughs> so there's the kind of courage that um, my wife needed when she, when she begged for me to marry her. I, I remember that kind of courage. That's <laughs> pretty much how it went. No, it, it didn't go like that at all. That's a different story for a different time. But then there's my favorite kind of courage. And I just got to show you this because to explain it does no justice. Some people would call this stupidity. I call this an American hero. Take a look at this video. <laughs> Amazing. Can we watch it one more time? Please, just one more time. <laughs> I could watch it 200 times and it never gets less funny. I mean, that, again, some people call it stupidity. I call it, that is courage right there. I mean, you got to commit. So, and then there's the kind of courage that caused a man named Joshua to say what he said. And you saw this on the video, but let me, let me read it to you. Many of you are familiar with this. Many of you have this hanging on your walls, but listen to the statement Joshua made as he addressed the nation of Israel. He says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, this is after he explains a couple other options, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Now, you read that, and oftentimes, I think we, we think of the verse on our walls, and it's really only when you begin to understand what led to that point that you understand just how much courage it took to say that. See, one of the misconceptions we have when we see a really, really courageous person is we think that they were just born with that kind of conviction. You know, that there was just like no fear in them whatsoever. They think green is the best color, the Detroit Lions are going to win the Super Bowl, and Ford is the best car. And you just think, well, you're thinking, what an idiot. They're like, I don't care. I don't care, right? They're just, there seem to be people who are just born with courage. And it's just there, and it's constantly there. And what we forget, what we forget is that courage is courage not because of the absence of fear, but because of the presence of it. In fact, if you were to look, if you were to look at the life of Joshua, which we're going to do this morning, there are a few incidents, and I'll admit every single one of those incidents could be its own sermon, but I want to do a bit of a flyover of a few things this morning because it was in the course, it's in the course of walking through his life coming up against situations in which fear was just so present in the room and surrounding him, that Joshua, that God instilled courage inside of Joshua. See, courage is not something you're born with. And fear is not something you're born with. You know what you're born with? Sin. And sin can take what we think of as courage, and it can, it can run and run and run much farther than we ever meant for it to go. 
And sin can also take fear, and it can just magnify it and magnify it and magnify it. And the only thing that brings us to a godly level and a godly kind of courage is allowing God to do something in us and through us. In other words, courage is a result. Courage is the fruit of God convincing us. Now, I know you, what you're thinking in your mind, convincing us, convincing us of what? And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, you've got to understand the context. You've got to remember that when Joshua is saying this, he didn't say this right out of the womb or as a child. Joshua is saying this at the age of 110 years old. 110 years old. And it's as if Joshua is standing there and he's thinking, with all I've seen, with all that God has walked me through, with all that God has said to me, I can put this choice before you with all the courage that God has given me. That, yeah, I know you have options. It was very, it's called a polytheistic society. They had many gods that they thought of and that their lives revolved around. Joshua says, look, you can take those options, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord, the living God. Now, you don't just arrive at a statement like that. A statement like that is one that God has got to convince you of. He's got to convince you that he truly is the living God. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to, as I mentioned earlier, I want us to walk through a few incidents in the life of Joshua that I believe marked him. And, and they marked him in such a way that he could stand up at the end of his life, not at the beginning, but at the end of his life, and be convinced. But some of the same things that God had to convince him through, he has to convince you and I through, even though it's generations upon generations upon generations later. I want to look at the first incident here. The first incident, if, if you're in Numbers chapter 14, in Numbers chapter 14, what's going on is God has told Moses, send some men to check out the land that you're about to enter into. And so Moses sends a group of men, and they come back, and after all they had seen, they're just, they're just, most of them are trembling. They're trembling in fear. They're saying, the people are huge. They will destroy us. We can't possibly go in there. And a man named Caleb says, no, no, no. We can go in, and we can take possession of this. Well, the people, they, they get cranked up again. Numbers chapter 14. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, this is after they've been griping and complaining, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but, excuse me, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. And this is a theme that Joshua, as you read about Joshua in his life, over and over and over, there is this statement, do not be afraid. Be strong. Take courage. And now it's coming out of his mouth to the majority of people who think, let's not do it. Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. One of the things that God has to convince us of is that the majority opinion is written in pencil and his is written in ink. See, that's not how we think though, is it? 
Because there, there's this fear that can come up, can't it? There's a fear because we're, we, we get worried about what people are going to think of me. And somebody, they write us a letter or they give us a phone call and they, they email us and, and, and they, they don't like us. And we get scared and we cower. And here's Joshua and Caleb, the only two that we're aware of. In the middle of all the Israelites who are grumbling and complaining and they're trembling and they're cowering in fear. And they said, no, no, no. We can go in. We can do this. Now, the interesting thing to me about this incident is not that this was not courage that was mustered. In fact, if you follow just the gradual appearance of Joshua in Scripture, because, you know, you, you get to Exodus and it's just Moses and the people and Moses and the people and Moses and the people and Moses' journey. But then you start to see Joshua's name a little bit. And I want to read you just one piece out of Exodus chapter 33 that had taken place prior to all of this. Listen to what it says. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face at this tent of meeting that we just read about in Numbers. The tent of meeting is where Moses would go to meet with God. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Well, what was Joshua still doing in the tent? And you got to think, whether you were just an audience to Moses and God talking, or if God somehow remained in there, Joshua was gradually, it says at a young age, tuned in to the voice of the Lord. Now, you want to know why that is such a big deal? Because when it came time, to listen for the voice of the Lord, what was going on? It was just the chorus of complaining of all the people, the majority opinion. And yet Joshua, over time, had learned to listen to the voice of the Lord. There's a man named Charles McKay. He wrote a book called, uh, it, I believe it's Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And in there he details what, what crowds are capable of. Crowds are actually capable, back in the, in the 1600s, the Dutch economy was almost just laid waste by, of all things, tulips. He called it tulip mania. And tulips became such a rare, hot commodity in the 1600s in the Dutch economy that people were actually willing to pay an entire year's salary for one tulip. Now, you think that's crazy, but this just plays out over and over and over. Children of the 90s, do you remember Beanie Babies? I mean, madness. Man, I remember reading about Beanie Babies that you could get from a McDonald's Happy Meal that could sell for $10,000. Sports cards are coming back. I mean, I, I loved sports cards as a kid. Just recently, I believe it was a Tom Brady card sold for $4 million, right? And, and really, it's just a bidding war, right? This is what crowds can do. This is what popular thinking can do. There's a class at Harvard a uh, group of MBA students, and the professor, every single year, he starts off the fall semester by holding up a $20 bill, and he says, okay, we are going to bid on this $20 bill. There's two rules. First rule is you can only increase your bid in $1 increments. And the second rule is that the runner-up has to pay, so whoever's first gets the $20, whoever is second has to also pay whatever they bid. Now, you can imagine how it goes, right? It's bidding, 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 bidding. Everybody gets to $18, and then they start looking around. And surely, somebody goes, well, even if I bid 19 and win, I'll get a dollar back. 
So somebody bids 19. And then somebody goes, well, I'll just break even. We'll just do the trade. And they'll bid $20. Guess what? It keeps going. In fact, one year, this professor at Harvard said that the bidding went all the way up to $204 for a $20 bill. But he said what happens is what kicks in is crowd mentality. Nobody wants to look silly in front of a crowd. This has been studied across NFL referees as well, as neutral and as objective as we think they are. Studies have shown that referees are often swayed by where they're standing in the stadium, who the majority of the crowds are. And some have admitted as much. But this is what we do. See, God has to convince us that, that if we would fear him over the majority opinion, then he can begin to convince us of what he's up to. And he can begin to move us to the, the, to the thing that we've got to get through when it comes to all the fear. Well, there's a second incident from Joshua's life that I believe led to the courage to make that statement at the end of his life that we know so well that we hang on walls. And this is in Joshua chapter 5. Joshua, they've now entered the land, and they're headed for Jericho. And many of you know the account of Jericho, and some of you could even sing the song and, and all that from growing up in church. But they're headed for Jericho, and in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua, he's a general now, and he looks up. And as he looks up, there is a man standing in front of him. Let me read to you the account. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword, in his hand. Now, if you're a general and somebody is standing, somebody has approached with a drawn sword, it's one of, one of two things is going on. Number one, somebody just doesn't know the rules and they're a rookie at all of this and they need to be trained again and put through boot camp. But the second possibility is that this is an assassin. And so Joshua does what really any of us would do in the next moment. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? You remember that? I mean, this is, a, this is a general. This is a general saying this, but you used to use this as a kid, right? Who's on my side and who's on their side, right? Don't we all do that? And then you find out as you go through life that it never really stopped because we all drive down the road and we think, who's for me? and who's against me, and, and things will happen, whether it's at work, or in the neighborhood, or at school, and you go home, and you're just thinking, who's for me, and who's against me? And listen to the man's reply, neither. You ever ask your kids, what do you want for dinner? Do you want mac and cheese, or do you want uh, chicken something? I, this has happened over and over. You want mac and cheese, or do you want a chicken sandwich? No. The angel of the Lord said, no, neither. And listen to the response. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This is no ordinary man. This is the angel of the Lord. And he's using Joshua's language. He said, I'm commander of the army. In other words, Joshua, you know that position you're in with the Israelites? That's the position I'm in with the army of the Lord. And then he just stands there. He just stands there. And you just think, okay, what's going to happen? I mean, you got a general of the Israelites and you got a general of the Lord's army. What, this is awesome. What's going to happen? And he just stands there. 
as if he's waiting for what Joshua is going to do. Now, at this point, when we come up against somebody that, we, that could be opposition, isn't there, isn't there a suspicion inside all of us that we tend to think because we've been wounded in life, that we tend to think that somebody's against us? And oftentimes what we do is we begin, we begin to power up and we begin to get defensive and we begin to have our guard up. But that's not what Joshua did here. Because we don't know if he, was, if he was completely just believing everything that this man said. But look what Joshua does next. <clears throat> then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? What message does my Lord have for his servant? Did you see how quickly Joshua, Joshua went from being the authority to submitting and coming under authority, knowing full well that he is under the authority of God. See how quickly that happened? See, one of the things God has to do is he's got to convince us, yes, that the majority opinion, the majority opinion is written in pencil, his is written in ink, but the next thing he's got to convince us of is that us being part of what he's up to is much greater is much bigger than him being part of what we're up to. I mean, isn't that how we pray? And, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. We say, God, guide me. God, bless me. God, bless this. Go before me. Protect me. Make this go well. And yet Joshua, when, we, when he gets the response from this captain of the Lord's army, he says this. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And then just four simple words, and Joshua did so. And Joshua did so. There was no but, but, hey, listen, you got to understand what we're up to here. We're doing some really big stuff, Lord. No, it's just, and Joshua did so. Why? Because Joshua understood, and Joshua had become convinced that him being part of what God was up to is so much bigger than God being part of of what he was up to. And after this, Joshua went and did incredible, incredible things. But it was as if, jo if God just had to make sure before all the success that you see in Joshua's life, and there is a ton, ton, ton of it, before all the success, before his name would gain any fame, before all of that, God was making sure, Joshua, do I have you? Do I have you as we go forward? See, oftentimes, what we do, whether we realize it or not, is, is similar to what a man who, this was about a decade ago, he stole a rare coin collection. This was out in Portland, Oregon. There was a news story about it. He stole this rare coin collection that was worth about $100,000. And uh, as police searched for it, they couldn't find it. The way they finally found it is he had mixed this coin collection in with all his other coins. And so one night, he... And his, his girlfriend at the time went out for pizza. And he spent this rare Liberty Quarter that was believed to be worth $18,500 on pizza for $7. I mean, can you imagine? We shake our heads, but you know what? That's what we do. We'll take something of so much value that we couldn't have earned unless God gave it to us, and we'll choose to spend it on just our own lives our own stuff, our own plans, our own ways. And God says, no, no, no. If you will recognize the value 
of what I'm up to. If you will recognize what I'm up to, I promise you, it's so much bigger. It's so much more valuable. Well, there's a third incident that I believe God used to convince Joshua of what he was up to and to give him a godly level of courage. It takes place right on the heels of their victory at Jericho. Joshua has some more men go scout this this town called Ai. And as they come back from Ai, listen to what they have to say. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. See, there's the fear again. It just keeps coming up. Verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. Now, the reason this is a big deal is because it was so uncharacteristic of Joshua to not inquire of the Lord before he went. I mean, you'd think after all those years of hearing God's voice and listening to God, that he'd be used to this by now. And yet, here was one battle that Joshua went, and he, he listened to his men when they said, we got it. We got it. You're fine. We don't even have to, spend, to send the whole army. We'll be fine. I mean, isn't that what we do? We kind of estimate what we're going to need for the task, and God becomes an afterthought, and he becomes a, hey, just bless my efforts here after the fact. And yet they were routed, and Joshua, verse 10, finds him down on his face, or verse 6. And then in verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? And the Lord goes on to say, listen, whatever led to you making the decision not to inquire with me, deal with that. And it's a whole account in and of itself. It's another message for another time. But it's fascinating because the consequences of not inquiring of the Lord, nobody has to teach you about. Every single one of us knows that experience, don't we? And yet that's where we get hung up. And that's where we begin to cower in fear. Because here's Joshua down on his face, and it's so interesting that God says, get up. Get up and go deal with it. Because God was about to do something. In fact, it was just a matter of days later that this same town that they had failed to take, they would take in ambush. And you know what? God has to convince us of this third thing. That not only is his opinion the one that's written in ink, not only is it far better to be part of what he's up to than always asking him to just be part of what we're up to, but he's also got to convince us that he will take our mistakes and make them into victories over and over and over. And that's exactly what happened. See, God started there for Joshua, and he'll start there with us, even in our mistakes. I love what Soren Kierkegaard, he's a Danish philosopher, he said this, he said to, that, that people would sit and brood and stare at their sin and is unwilling to have faith that it's forgiven is just itself a further guilt. It ignores what Christ has done. I remember one time somebody put it to me similar but a little bit different. They said, Nathan, 
You are sitting and you are staring at your mistakes, the very things that God wants to redeem and turn around. Would you stand in front of the cross as Jesus hung there? Would you say that's not enough? Could you stand there while Jesus is hanging there? Could you say it's not enough? Because that's what we do every single time. Because we're scared. We can get so fearful. And so God is in the process as we see through the life of Joshua. And there's so many more incidents of convincing us of what he's up to. And convincing us that he's got us. And convincing us that it's his voice that matters. Convincing us that it's his plans that are bigger. Convincing us that even our shortcomings, he will turn for his purposes. Now, when you look through the life of Joshua, there's, there's this thread, right? I mean, you get to Joshua chapter 24, and as we read, the, read a, a bigger section of it, you realize he's recounting what God has done in the lives of the nation of Israel. Over and over and over, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. In fact, he says this. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness because Joshua realizes he is about to die. He's 110 years old now. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Uh, I'm sorry, throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That took a lot of courage to be able to say, and that took a long journey of being convinced by God and convinced by God and convinced by God. Now, you've got to recognize where this is in the development of the nation of Israel. See, they had to go through a whole, 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 whole long time, many, many years of being brought out of slavery and then getting out of a slavery mindset. And now they had just spent all, all, all these years under a new leader, not Moses, but Joshua, learning what freedom what living with freedom would look like. And for them, what took decades and decades and decades and over a century and more, what it took them to learn, you don't have to take that long. See, because they lived on the other side of the cross. But you know what happens? There is something that happens, and maybe you remember this, and maybe you, maybe you, you just, this hasn't been your experience yet. But when you come, to the cross, when you begin to trust in what Jesus did on your behalf at the cross, you know what happens? God begins to convince you. And it doesn't have to take a whole lifetime. He, he progresses it throughout a lifetime. But to the young people in here, it, it, you don't have to wait till you're 110 years old. You don't. You don't have to wait till you're 110 years old. You don't have to go back to school this week believing that the majority opinion is the one that matters. It's written in pencil. His is written in ink. And when you come to trusting what he did on your behalf at the cross, he begins to anchor that inside. You can begin to realize that his plans for you are so much bigger than your plans for him and how you'd like to use him. And you begin to realize that even your mistakes 
can be turned into victories. Now, I don't know about you. It, it took me, I wish I had 20 years back. Many of you are going, well, 20? <laughs> That's not bad, Nathan. <laughs> I'm not calling you old, okay? You just have more life experience than me. But so many of us, we can look back and we wish we had some time back, don't we? We wish that we had learned, as Joshua did, in that tent of meeting to begin to listen and get familiar with the voice of God. And so do the young people. And I'll let you define young, okay? But we all can benefit from getting attuned to the voice of God. For those in the middle, and I'll let you define that as well, all right? In, in our middle years, you know what one of the greatest things we can do is, is we make all these plans and we've got a plan for how life's going to go, is to stop and go, wait, God, what are your plans? What, what can I be part of? Instead of just, why, why aren't you part of this and why aren't you part of this and why isn't this working out and why isn't that working out? But God, what can I be part of? And finally, to those who have far more experience than any of us in this room, there is something so interesting about Joshua chapter 24 to me, because at 110 years old, after he makes this speech, I want you to read Joshua chapter 24, verse 31. And Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. The elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. This is a hard hard truth for every single one of us. But in a thousand years, nobody is going to know that I was here. Nobody's going to know that you were here. But see, what happens is we look around and it's like we want to jump generations. I mean, think about Michael Jordan. I mean, growing up, I mean, it's just he was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. I still believe that, okay? And if you want to discuss that, we can fight in the parking lot afterwards. But anyway, Michael Jordan, I just the greatest basketball player who ever lived. But when you, when you read about Michael Jordan's early years, there was somebody before Michael Jordan that everybody thought was the greatest basketball player who ever lived. It was Wilt. Wilt the Stilt, Chamberlain. And now it only took, what, less than 20 years? LeBron James has arrived on the scene, and he's near the end of his career, and there are people that are having that discussion. This was just a couple of decades, and yet what we do is we look at our lives, and we get so worried about that legacy piece. What I love about Joshua's life is not later on in Judges when you hear that there, was a, there arose a generation that didn't know the Lord but that Joshua just looked around at those he could influence, the elders, the leaders of Israel, his household, and he said, I'm just going to live with the courage that God has convinced me to have right now. It was the only thing he could do. It's the only thing you can do. But the greatest thing you can do is to every single day when you get up, if you've entrusted your, your life to what Jesus Christ, your Savior, did at the cross, it is all you can do, and you got to trust God with the outcome of it. I know there are many in here that your children, your grandchildren, you're incredibly concerned about, especially in this culture. You know, it seems like every single generation, once they get to a certain age, they think, I don't know if I'd want to bring kids into this world. And I get it. I mean, when you hear about a, a society with many, many gods, you can look around and go, yep, we're there. We're there. But the greatest thing you can do 
is live from the courage that God has convinced you of and influence, not generations ahead, but the people right in front of you. And so with all that said, I don't know if you need to make a note, if you need to write it down, if you need to look around, if you need to consider. It's worth asking. Is the majority opinion, is the majority opinion driving me along? Am I asking God to be part of everything I'm up to without considering what he's up to? And am I I just being held back by my mistakes? Because God wants to convince you to a godly level of courage. So as the worship team comes back up, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and and as we're praying right now, if, if we could hold our hands out and close our fists, and if we could just begin to open our hands. Because as we cling to other people's opinions, as we cling to what we're, we're hearing on the news and, and we're, we're seeing all around us, Lord, we surrender. We surrender to you. Because we know that ultimately every single thing we walk through in life is something that you want to have say. And so, Lord, tune us into your voice. Lord, deepen our courage, not, not because it's something we mustered but it's because as we go through the ebb and flow of the different situations of life, you continue to convince us that it's you, that it's your voice who matters. It's your voice that counts. No, we won't ever do away with the presence of fear until you return. But Lord, we can walk. We can walk with courage that gets us through it so that we can get to the very thing that you you have for us to be part of your plan. We lift it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.